Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangeley Capital Podcast. This is a 15-minute long podcast and the clock starts now. I'm Chris Demuth, a portfolio manager at Rangeley Capital, and with me as always is my co-host and colleague, Andrew Walker. Uh, it is Tuesday, March the 1st, and today we wanted to talk a bit about Buffett's Berkshire annual letter uh, that came out over the weekend. Uh, Andrew, why don't I uh, set the stage for us for a bit? Um, we've been pretty clear about our uh, admiration for Warren Buffett. Uh, he is often the subject of adulation of hero worship. And here at Rangeley Capital, uh, we are for the hero, but for none of the worship. And uh, so we read this, but read it with skepticism uh, and uh, in our own opinions. Uh, so what did you think of this year's annual letter? Well, Chris, I, I have to say this is about our 35th or 40th podcast, and it's been different sitting on the other side and having you introduce it for the first time. But, uh, you know, I think for longtime readers of Buffett's annual letter, I think it was a lot more of the same. But there were several things in there that I picked up on that were kind of an interesting refresher of the same old topics or a lot of things that he didn't say that I think revealed a lot on the uh, on his thoughts on some things. But the big thing as investors, I think, was he did a uh, – he changed how he talks about the intrinsic value of Berkshire. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, he said, hey, our intrinsic value is well above book value. We will buy back shares at 1.2 times book value. And even last year, he started laying out the two-column method where you take the – operating earnings from the businesses plus the cash and investments on their books and use those put a multiple on the operating earnings and use that to come out with a ref estimate of intrinsic value well this year he added underwriting profits from the insurance business to that operating earnings calculation and in the past he didn't so the questions kind of become why do you add that now and why not give some formalized measure of underwriting profits? Because underwriting profits, the reason he had included them in the past is they've been very volatile. Volatile. So I'll throw that question to you. Why add insurance underwriting profits now? I've always thought they should have. Yes, uh, yes. And, uh, and so I've always kind of had to add it back by hand. Uh, and uh, so maybe he has felt a little uncomfortable with my discomfort. And so he's finally <laughs> just broken. I, I think that's... I'd give it a 9 out of 10 chance that's why he did. But in the 1 out of 10 off chance that it wasn't for your personal discomfort, what else do you think? Uh, I don't know. I, You know, I, I, I don't know either. So not including underwriting profits is extremely conservative. I, You can correct if you – off the top of my head, I don't think they've ever reported a underwriting loss. Though in a super cat type year, they probably would. Uh, but one thing could be as he gets closer to kind of not retirement, but as he ages and he gets closer to at some point he'll die and he'll have to turn it on. He wants the market to become more efficient and the degree of undervaluation is bothering him more and more as he can no longer control it. Go ahead. You could see that in several places mm -hmm. in the letter where I think he was talking uh, – I wouldn't say going away party, but he was talking this towards his views in a way that I think he has medium term comfort with mispricing usually, mm -hmm. but he doesn't want this medium term. So I mean, just the number of times he was talking about book value versus intrinsic value yeah. and giving a little bit of energy behind those points, I really think he wants the price to be about right these days. And now one more thing I'll mention here is 
uh, I, I think you kind of get the shareholders you deserve. And now in Buffett's case, he trains them to look at long-term intrinsic value, right? He gives you look at annual numbers, look at book value, which doesn't vary a lot over time. He doesn't train, he doesn't host analyst calls. He doesn't put out trumpeting press reports. There's obviously no dividend to point to. So he gets investors who have a long-term focus. And uh, you can contrast this to a lot of companies, say like Verizon and AT&T. We hear a lot of times the dividend there is sacrosanct. Mm -hmm. And they will pass up deals that make a lot of sense on an intrinsic value or strategic sense because it might threaten the dividend. And Buffett has none of those concerns. All, as long as he maximizes intrinsic value, his shareholders appreciate that. So we've talked a little bit about what was in the letter. What was missing? What were the dogs not barking? So one of the things that really jumped out to me was precision cast parts. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a $30 billion plus acquisition that he announced in July of 2015, completed earlier this year. And he really only mentioned them in a two-paragraph blurb. And for the largest acquisition in Berkshire's history, I thought it was kind of strange that he mentioned it that uh, in that small of a sentence. And I think the reason is uh, he announced the deal in July 2015. It was at a decent premium. And if you look at kind of how peers have traded since July 2015, Precision Cast Parts probably would have traded for about 50 to 60% of what Berkshire paid for it on the open market today. So in the short term, it doesn't look like a great deal. Now, in the long term, it very well could have been. But in the short term, Buffett out, out overpaid. Uh, and we know you don't become the world's greatest and richest investor by overpaying for things. And it probably kind of annoys him a little bit that he did overpay, so he didn't mention it too much. Yeah, this is a deal you definitely want to think about in terms of the long term. Exactly. Yeah. It's, when something goes down well below your cost basis, you go from kind of – you all of a sudden have a very long-term perspective on it. What happened to the T's? Where are Todd and Ted and where is Tracy? So – Tracy is a great point. She was not mentioned at all, and she has historically, in her, his last couple of letters, he has uh, really been trumpeting what a great young manager she is. He's put her all, at the chairman of some level, so I don't know where she went. But the T's, uh, Todd and Ted, were very interesting to me as well. Uh, he did call them, he did hire, call hiring the two of them, the two of them, uh, some of his best moves ever, so he's clearly still happy with them. But uh, in Maybe in a long-term sense also. <laughs> in a long-term sense. In 2013, in his annual letter, he praises Todd and Ted and mentions that their portfolios have beat his by a lot and praises their outperformance. Well, it's tough to judge because Berkshire's portfolio has a lot of moving parts. But in 2014, they almost definitely underperformed the market. And in 2015, it looks like they almost definitely underperformed the market. So all of a sudden, now that they're underperforming the market, he praises their hire, but he's not praising their stock market performance, if that makes sense. Buffett mentioned, uh, and he's mentioned this in the past, but that in his uh, uh, will and in instructions to his wife, uh, if he precedes her, uh, that she's to put it in a mix of the S&P 500 mm -hmm. and uh, government uh, debt uh, at a 9 to 1 ratio uh, instead of Berkshire. Yeah. It, uh, which do you think, which would you prefer here? Uh, which do you think is going to outperform over the long term for me? You know, it, that's it's super interesting that he doesn't have her put in Berkshire. I don't think it's specifically a call on Berkshire because he gives a lot of weight to charities and he gives it away in Berkshire stock. But uh, very interesting. From my point of view, if I was investing today, and I actually have a little bit of this trade on, 
uh, long Berkshire short the S&P 500 seems like a very good trade at these levels. You're buying Berkshire at what seems to be uh, discounted prices, discount to its intrinsic value. And you're shorting the S&P 500 at what seems fair to slightly overvalued uh, levels on a kind of normalized basis. I think there are some ways the trade could underperform. Obviously, Buffett could have lost it. Berkshire could underperform for a long term going forward. I think the biggest way would be Berkshire is very underweight in terms of technology and very overweight in terms of kind of old line businesses. So if technology continues to just create massive amounts of value relative to its kind of lofty uh, multiple right now, you'd underperform. But I think that's a decent bet to be taking. Do you think he's given any explicit instructions to his successor about the buybacks? Do you think that he's ready to be the first one to exploit his demise for profit? <laughs> I, I would not be surprised. So if you think they trade at call it 1.3x book right now, there certainly could be a short-term panic when he passes away where shares trade off 15%. And having that 1.2x buyback in place could uh, really position Berkshire well to buy back a lot of shares at what he calls uh, prices that will materially raise intrinsic value on any panic and is and uh, when he dies. So yeah, I, I think absolutely that's a thing. 3G. Uh, I am a huge fan. Yep. And, and separately uh, uh, and uh, before anything that they did publicly, at least with Buffett, I was always a huge admirer mm-hmm. of theirs. Uh, but the, he has a funny relationship with them. Uh, it's a little bit like Andrew Carnegie's uh, uh, relationship with Freck. Uh, you know, when it was time <laughs> uh, to shoot some trade unionists, he would kind of go play golf in Scotland and say, uh, 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 Frick, uh, you know, uh, uh, shame we have uh, these uh, strikes and I'd hate for anything bad to happen about it. Uh, so don't tell me till I get back. Uh, and uh, and I think that that's a little bit like the kind of grandfatherly Buffett and the hard-nosed uh, Brazilians from 3G. What yep. do you think about that? So it, he didn't specifically do it in this letter, but in many letters he has said, oh, listen, family business owners, why would you ever sell to private equity for a 10x multiple mm-hmm. when you could sell to me for an 8x multiple and I'm going to cherish your business. I'm not going to have forever. mass firings. I, I'll cherish it forever. I'll never turn it over. I'll never do anything to it. Uh, but then on the, in this letter, he's saying 3G who goes in, buys companies, fires, not everyone, but I mean, will cut half the workforce, slash prices, slash perks. He praises 3G and says he'd love to continue partnering with them. Uh, so it's kind of it's very hypocritical on his part. Sell to me at a cheaper price, or if you're a public company, let 3G come in, take over, and fire everyone. But don't sell to don't sell to other people outside of me because they'll fire everyone. Very hypocritical. I, I would associate myself with that whole description, other than the word hypocritical. I think it's kind of a reputation arbitrage. Yeah. Okay. You get to exploit for profit ruthlessness without being seen as ruthless yourself. So I think you are correct. It, it is somewhat hypocritical, but what it really is, is he's got this great reputation and he continues to not do the firing and 3G is kind of his outsource firing uh, arm. But yeah, it, it, extremely interesting. America, uh, America's future, and specifically touching on a little politics and lobbying. What, mm-hmm. did, uh, what did Mr. Buffett have to say about that? Well, sometimes you can feel like a fool for being a huge bull on America. Uh I, sometimes I feel alone, and when you see Donald Trump getting ready to win the Republican nomination, sometimes you might really be a fool. But uh, Warren Buffett says he is hugely bullish on America, and it's great to hear someone else who's hugely bullish 
Uh, I think a lot of people worry about what happens to America as uh, technology continues to improve. A lot of uh, jobs are going to be, shall we call it, upset. Uh, you know, driverless cars could put tons of truckers out of business. The taxi industry, whole sectors are looking vulnerable to technological revolution. And what Buffett's saying is, you know, our best days are not behind us. They're ahead of us. As these technological innovations happen, there will be even new and even better opportunities for these uh, employees. And I think one other thing he says that's important is you do need something of a social safety net as this happens. Uh, you know, taking truckers who are displaced by driverless cars and getting them into the, these new jobs, it does take some kind of uh, social realignment and a social safety net can really help uh, – can really prevent any disruption in the meantime, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think about his uh, big four investments? Uh, uh, and if you could invest in any one of these, do they hold any appeal or make sense to you uh, when you talk about uh, his kind of standalone uh uh, big equity uh, positions. Yeah. So his big four equity investments, and I think it's a big five now that he's got Kraft Heinz. So Kraft Heinz, which uh, 3G is running, is one. Four and a half. And then the four would be uh, Amex, IBM, Coke, and Wells Fargo. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting. If you look at all four of them, all four of them are old line businesses that are facing a lot of disruption in their industry. Uh, Coke is sugar water, and the sugar water industry has come under attack. Amex is increasingly under attack by Visa, Mastercard, and online ways to uh, pay. Online ways to pay. They just lost the uh, the big thing with Amex was you pulled it out and people thought you were important because you had an Amex card. When you pay online, it doesn't matter what the brand is. Amex just lost the Costco brand. Uh, I believe their SPG branding is going to be up for bids, and a lot of people think they're going to lose that. So their future is very much up in the air. IBM, we've talked about, they're, they're rapidly losing to Amazon, Google, a lot of others. So their future looks questionable as a technology giant. And then uh, Wells Fargo, the banking industry is continually under disruption from online banking, LendingClub.com. They're getting regulated increasingly by the Fed as a systematically important institution. So all four of them face very interesting issues. And, you know, that kind of goes back to the Berkshire is an old school uh investment firm they don't have any of that new technology based thing uh it's very interesting he had a lot of thoughts on technology i was very interested in self-driving cars and mm -hmm. i have to say when i'm in my mid 80s i'm going to take a lot of kind of long dated 15 year out bets <laughs> uh, uh like he mentioned long bets specifically uh, and uh, that's how i'm going to spend my uh, uh 80th uh, decade one interesting one he talked a lot about geico and he said i think it's on his 100th birthday he's going to announce that geico has surpassed state farm as mm -hmm. the largest insurance company auto insurer i think it is in the world and that's interesting because if you think about GEICO, they insure human-driven cars. Their whole model is we don't have insurance agents, so we can underprice State Farm, who does pay insurance agents. And I think they, uh, I think they would be very susceptible to autonomous cars. So by endorsing GEICO and a lot of these other things, Buffett's almost betting against some of these techno technological things. One thing I've always uh, admired about Buffett and been very interested in is that he is philosophical. He enjoys thinking about things. But boy, is he careful about his own resources and his own money. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so he'll have kind of these generalized views about, say, global warming or so forth. But he's very careful on uh, Berkshire. And he really, I think, 
I think it's fair to say he does not let his politics affect his uh, asset allocation. No, not at all. If you think back to the 70s, he was warning people about massive inflation coming. And Mm -hmm. many people with that type of massive inflation view would go long a lot of gold or long a lot of farmland. And he didn't do that. He he kept investing in great businesses. The last one I'll mention, and then I'll give you two seconds. Uh, He devoted a significant amount of time to talking about Clayton Holmes' lending practices. Mm -hmm. And Clayton Holmes has uh, been in the news a lot recently. People accused them of basically racist lending practices. And he didn't address that per se in his letter. But when you think Clayton Holmes got about two pages of their lending practices in there versus Precision Cast Parts got half a paragraph, you can tell why he did exactly what he did. Right. Walker, this is a 15-minute podcast. I have to cut you off. You keep banging on forever. And uh, that's it from you. Uh, so I'm going to take your microphone off. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, whatever you want. It's been fun having you be the host, Chris. We will talk to you guys tomorrow afternoon.